Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Susquehanna Valley Church. Uh, my name is Matt, and we are thrilled to have you with us this morning. I have to say that this week I got a haircut, which is normally not a big thing. It's not normally, but I got a haircut, and I had no intention of getting a haircut. Um, I had to get a haircut, all right? And the reason I had to get a haircut is because I was burning a bunch of old stuff, and something went wrong. And so uh, I had a bunch of like old wood that we were just getting rid of, and there was like this sheet of plywood, and I thought, no big deal, I'll just throw it on the fire, and, uh, and that'll be that, and it'll burn up, and it's the last I'll ever think about it. Not true. Um, I threw it on the fire, and as it landed, it kind of landed like that end first, and then it flushed all the flame right back at me. And I was like, wow, that was hot. That, that, that could have been bad. Could have been bad, is what I thought. Um, <laughs> And then I got my truck to go drive somewhere else, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, oh, that, so that was bad. <laughs> that was, because I had a quarter inch of hair burned the whole way off, the whole way around the back of my head and the side. And, and I looked, and I was like, that explains this really bad smell that has been following me around. <laughs> He's like, I, I got to go get a haircut. I can't, I can't have half of my hair burned a quarter inch down. Uh, so I went and I got it. And, and the lady was like, yeah, you, you really did get yourself. And it was like really awkward to say like, so I, I wanted to be like, you know, I rescued some little kid out of the fire. <laughs> but I had to fess up and say, this is what happened. But don't worry. And the beard was fine. The beard was fine. Um, I admit I'm, I'm about the most accident-prone person in the world, and uh, we've we got somebody who attends here, and they're a workman's comp lawyer, and they were like, if you were my client, I'd be rich. I'd be rich. I just, things go wrong all the time, and like, honestly, the worst one, I, I, my funny bone, like the, the elbow, like my, when I, when I die, if they do an autopsy, they're going to look and they say, like, either this guy was a cage fighter and used his elbows all the time, or this guy was like, the, he's the most accident prone person, which I am, um, because I always hit my funny bone. And if you've ever done that, it's really not funny, is it? Like, that's what everybody thinks. The second you hit your funny bone, you're like, this isn't funny. It's not funny. Um, and I remember, like, just so many times where I, I hit it carrying a tray of, like, five pies at a restaurant. That was kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, for everybody else. But it's, they call it the funny bone because it's the humorous bone, right? So that's, that's why I don't, I'm assuming you probably knew that. Uh, but it's humorous with an E instead of humorous with an O. Um, but you, you, when you first find that out, when I first found that out, I was like, why, why do they call it the, the funny bone? That's not funny. It doesn't like, make anybody laugh. It just hurts really bad. And, it's because it sounds like humorous. And so th there's a difference there when you look into it. And what we've been doing in this one story series is kind of is kind of correcting some some information, misinformation, and really helping us to understand what the whole Bible is about in one story. It's saying, oh, so that's what that is. Like so so last week Eric looked at the passage where where Abraham, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, and you're like, whoa, why would God call him to do that? And and then, then God provides this ram, and you're like, wow, why would God do that? And then you're like, oh, God's going to provide his own son so that we can have life. And so we've been looking at stories like this, and um, if you're just joining us, you can check them out online. We've, we've got the whole series there. I love this series because it's really saying, it's really that this is what that was about the whole time. 
And so we're going to look at one today where the nation of Israel has left, they've, they've left slavery. They were enslaved from the nation of Egypt and, and God miraculously brought them out of that. And they're going to go from slavery to promised land, okay? Slavery to promised land. And we're in that journey where God's going to take them through the desert um, where God wants to, he really wants to teach them to bring them to a place where they're incredibly dependent upon him. So God's like, I, I have promised land for you. Promised land is amazing. If I put you right in there, you, you're just going to forget about me and you're not going to rely on me. So through this desert journey, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach you to depend on me. And, and so much of the scriptures really are about us and our dependence on God and our reliance on him. And, and so you have to understand that from God's perspective, it's much more, it's much more about who we are than what we have. Who we are to God way overshadows what we have. Like even as a father, like with raising my own kids, yeah, I want to give them things in life. I want them to be blessed. I want them to have things that they enjoy. But way, way, way more importantly to me is the idea of who they are. And so God looks at us as humans and he's like, yeah, I could bless you with promised land, but who you are when you get promised land is way more important how you love me, how you love each other, how you rely on me, how you respond to, to difficulties. These are way more important than what you have in life. And so we're going, sometimes in life we're going, God, why aren't you blessing me? Why aren't you blessing me? And God's going, I'm blessing you by doing what's far greater, and that's refining your character, growing your faith so that you really go through life depending on me. It's been said that the time in the desert for Israel was not about transportation, it was about education. It's not about just getting from point A to point B. It's about how God's going to shape them through that time in their life. And this journey, this journey was supposed to be pretty short, but the, the testing didn't go too well. And so God kept them there and kept them there for 40 years. And, and we're going to look at a story that's, that's 30 days into this travel um, where God's going to test them. And this test is ultimately, and this provision is ultimately going to point to the one story of what this scripture is all about. So check it out with me. Exodus chapter 16 and verse two says, in the desert, the whole community, like the whole nation grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They're hungry. Um, the, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, which I think is just kind of a silly phrase in the scriptures. We're about to die. Why, it would have been better if we died a long time ago. Like, it doesn't really make sense, but whatever. Um, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread for, from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Let's pray. God, there's something about our culture where we don't necessarily like the idea that you might test us. We like to be in charge of things. We like to think that we're okay and, and, and that we're the authority, but then we read a text like this and we're challenged with that. That you might take us through a season where we kind of wander in the desert, so to speak, and, and in that, you're doing the more important work the, uh, of creating and shaping who we are and who we're to be in, in, in your heart, and your plans. And, and Father, we're so consumed with what do we have 
that we, we kind of misconnect, we miscommunicate with you, we misunderstand that who we are is far more important than what you have for us in life. And, and, and I just pray this morning that you teach us, you teach us about dependence on you, you teach us about how you're going to provide, and we ask that in your son's name. Amen. So th- this whole thing, did you catch it? Whole thing is about dependence. Whole thing is about they need to understand that they rely on God. That's what he says. That I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give you food. I'm gonna give you food as long as it takes for us to get through this. You're gonna have food. I'm gonna give it to you for the day. Enough for the day. Now, how, how does that feel if you're in that situation? Because we like to store up. You remember when the pandemic first hit and, and, and at Costco was like, you know, Costco was just lines out the door and people were buying toilet paper for the next 30 years. We like to, we like to store up. And God says, no, no, no. I need you to understand something about how this dynamic works between you and me. And, and so nation of Israel, I'm going to give you food, but you're going to get it every day. And you're going to get enough for that day, which if I'm being honest, if I were in that position, this would be a lesson I wouldn't want to have to learn. This would be one of those things like, yeah, 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 I got it, God, cool. I got to depend on you every day. I'm going to do that. I'll say grace and I'll thank you for the food and we're good and we can move on. God says, no, I, I need you to really learn this, that you really, truly depend on, on me. This is, really, this is really important. And it exposes the idea that we don't like dependence. We don't like to. Like if I, I said today, hey, you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You, whatever you have planned, God's going to do something else. It's not gonna, whatever you thought isn't going to work out. We're like, what? No, I'll just go to a different restaurant. Or I'll just go buy food. Or, you know, it's no big deal. I, I, I'll be able to, to do it. To be in a situation we have to depend is it, difficult for us. Even like, you know, me with my kids now, like as I, as I try and teach them things, you, you know what they do? It didn't take them very long to start doing this. They were doing this at the age of like three where they start to push my hand away. Because I, I go to help them, you know, even as something as simple of like, hey, this is how you brush the dog so she doesn't turn around and bite your hand off. Um, this, this is how you do that. And, and they're like, I got it. I got it. And, and that's, that's kind of how we live as, as I got it. And we go through different phases of life. And as we get older and we need more things to keep us healthy, it's very difficult because we're dependent and we don't like to be dependent on things because the second that we're dependent, there's a whole bunch of question marks out there of what if whatever or whoever or, or whenever I'm depending on doesn't show up. And so we don't, we don't like question marks around us. And so we do whatever we can to eliminate question marks. And I'm honing in on this, focusing in on this, because in our culture, in an affluent culture, we have the means to get rid of most of the question marks. We have the means to get rid of most of the things that we're uncertain about. And the more affluent we are, the, the more money we have, the more that we can get assurance, we can have retirement, we, we can have whatever it is that we feel we need so that we're not dependable. Um, and, and so Solomon prays this prayer. Solomon, wisest man to live, prayed this prayer. He says, God, don't give me so little that I might have to steal. But he says, don't give me too much, God, that I might forget about you. Because he recognizes that within his heart, if he has everything that he could want, he might 
become less reliant upon God to the point where he forgets about, about God. See, the more familiar we are with comfort, the more we have in affluence, the, the less we tend to be dependable. Even, even this message this morning, I'm going like, all right, Exodus, we're going to look at Exodus and we're going to go, we're going to jump to John 6. Cool. I preached both of those before. I've been preaching for 20 years now. I've got Bible college. I've got seminary. Cool. I got it. Because the more that we have, there's a temptation to say, I got it. When I was a kid, we had this, uh, we had this competition to see who could uh, come up with these different ways of dropping an egg off the roof of the school, and it would not break. Okay, so that was like your science project, right? And, and there were like the rebel kids who were like, just chuck mine off, try and hit somebody. Smash, right? I went through all my stuff, and I found a G.I. Joe parachute. I was like, this is going to work. And I got foam padding from, from an old carpet square and I, like, I wrapped it around there and like three layers of that and then I put rubber bands so that, the, the, that it would stay along loosely and then, then attached it to the parachute. And man, it was just beautiful. It was like a nice, calm, windy day and, and they dropped it off and it was like, and all the other kids are like splat, splat. Mine's my, my just gently floating and just like rest gently upon the macadam below. Like, th- this is what we try and do with life isn't it? Like we, tr- we try to make it so that if anything happens, we're, we're comforted. And I get it. I get there's some wisdom in this. I'm not, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't try to, to be wise. What I'm arguing is that deep down, we have to fight this feeling that our wisdom has somehow provided us an opportunity where we're not dependent on God. Because that's, that's not how this works. And God takes the nation of Israel through the desert to say, I'm going to give you promised land. But if you get to promised land and you think this is about you and you think that promised land is, is what, if promised land is the idol, if that's what you want and that's, that's the solution to all your problems, then you'll miss the point. The, the point is that you deeply rely on me regardless of how much cushion you've been able to put around you in life. And so we've got to be incredibly, incredibly intentional to on a regular basis say, God, I, I, see, through, I see through all the padding and really I rely on you. And so you make your heart go back to that reality where you see through it and you say, I want to ingrain in my heart, God, that I fully depend on you. That's what he does in the desert. That's what this journey is about. He wants them to have a, there's no possible way we get through this part of their journey unless it's God. There's no way, there's no way we get through this unless it's God. And he wants them to have that at the, at the front end of this experience. And, and what's interesting is I've, I've talked to many of us, and many of us have these incredible stories where we look back and we're like, that was, that was Jesus. I, I could not have done that without, without God. Like Connor is, our, our student main guy is awesome. He's like, we'll have this incredible youth event. He's like, that was just a Jesus thing. Right? We'll have these different moments in our life where it's like, there's no way I could have gotten through this unless, unless God himself got me through it. For me, like looking at blood clots, being in the hospital and, and just fearing the possibility of what might happen and, and, and God sends my best friend to, or one of my best friends to come pick me up and take me to the hospital in an ambulance. Like he was working as an EMT one day a week, one shift at, at a place and he happened to be on call when I called in. I mean, it's just little things where I'm like, God, 
you brought me through. You know what I found in, in, in those moments? Two things that tend to be true. One, uh, especially when they're, when they're life-threatening, one is well, we'd never volunteer to go back. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's like, yeah, I want, I want to go back to that situation of utter dependence. I want to go back there. Nobody says that. The other thing I find is that everybody, everybody who's been through that says, God did through me incredible things to shape and change me and mold me that's invaluable. There's no way I would have learned it unless he put me there. No way I would have learned it unless I went through it. So God has this just uncanny ability to say, I see what needs to be done, and I'm going to put you in the only spot where it can happen, where you truly get to a place of dependence on me. And so God's going to put them in the desert to say, every day I'm going to feed you because I want you to see that every day I'm going to provide for you. But really, really, Exodus isn't even just about that. Really, really Exodus is, is about this greater story of how as dependent as they were, it, it, it kind of fails in comparison to as dependent as we are spiritually. And as much as God provided for them in a physical meal, is wow, God spiritually provides for us off the charts in Jesus Christ. This is the context in John chapter 6. Jesus is, is he's crossed around uh, to, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. To this point, he's done some incredible miracles. He's, he's turned water into wine. He's healed people. He's, he's just spoken, and a guy's son is healed miles away. And so he's got this crowd that's just following him, right? They're on his trail wherever he goes. And, and, and so Jesus takes them to a mountainside, the Sea of Galilee's behind them, and he says, to this crowd of thousands of people, go ahead and, and sit down. And then the scripture in John 6 says to test his disciples because that's the thing God does. To test his disciples, he goes, where are we going to get lunch? And his disciples are looking around, they're like, Jesus, this isn't really a thing. We don't have stadium vendors at this. Like there's no hot dog guy walking around. There's no peanut guy walking around. They're like, where, Jesus is like, where are we going to get the food? And his disciples are like, we'd have to work for over half a year to be able to pay for food for all these people. I don't know what to do. One of the disciples comes out with, with is essentially a little kid's lunchbox. I don't know if he stole the lunch or if he borrowed the lunch or what, but he shows up with a lunchbox and he's like, I got five loaves and I got two fish. And I'm sure at this point, the disciples are like, Cool, thanks. Good solution. Yep. Anybody else? Anybody else have a real solution to what we've got here? And so Jesus instructs them to have the crowds of thousands. They're seated in, in verse 11 of chapter 6. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. Wow, how incredible is that? Jesus, all we have is these, these couple of loaves and fish, and that's, that's enough. I can work with that. And I can just imagine the scene as the disciples are just sitting there astounded, like, okay, there went one fish. I'm pretty sure he already passed out two fish before that. And there's like, wow. They have 12 baskets left over. 
And they're looking at this and going, who is this guy? Wow. Now, here's the thing. If you really want to understand the Gospels, and I hope you do. I hope you spend genuine time just working through, reading through the Gospels. You really want to understand the Gospels. Jesus does not often claim, claim to be the Messiah. He doesn't often claim to be the Messiah. And you say, well, why? He was the Messiah. Because in their culture, the Messiah meant political king ruling over in a military fashion. They had three fake messiahs shortly before Jesus' arrival. And so if Jesus were to come and say, cool, I gave you all this food because I'm the messiah, they're going to go, right now we got an army, we're going for the throne, you're going to rule us. Jesus couldn't possibly say he was the messiah because in their mind they, they would have been like, cool, we got a new king. But Jesus' real version of what a Messiah is doesn't exist in their mind. They wouldn't have been able to fathom the idea that, that there would be a Messiah who'd have the ability to, to multiply food like this and then he was going to go die. That, that, that doesn't make any sense to them. They would have tried to put a crown on, crown on him. And they start, if you read through all of John 6, you really see that undertone there where they're trying to pull him to be king. And so Jesus slips out. And, and later he meets up with and reconvenes with the disciples on the other side of the lake. Um, in verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you. This is so, this is so exposing of them and honestly of us if, if, if we look at it. I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors, here's our story connection, ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know what Jesus does? He exposes something in their heart that when it comes to the Messiah and his abilities, the people, the people were far more concerned with what he could do for them than with who he actually was. Jesus says, you, you, you're tracking me around this lake because you want more food. Because you saw that I could do this and you saw how that could be something that you could be selfish with. And it's not really about that. You know, when I was a kid, I remember getting a card at a birthday. It was at my grandma's house and I was opening presents, and it was just kind of like this rush of going through presents, and I opened a card from my aunt, and, uh, and everybody like makes fun of me yet to this day as in my family, because apparently I opened the card, and I said, where's the money? <laughs> shook the card in case anything would fall out, opened the envelope, shook the envelope, and nothing came out, and I said, where's the money? Now, of course, my aunt had already given me a present, but... But that's, that's what's going on here. Everybody who's around Jesus is going, where's the money? You could. Jesus, I see. I see how this could work for me. You could give me what I want nationalistically. You could give me what I want materialistically. 
You, you could provide for me what I want in my health and for my family's health. And it, it really comes back to be, where's the money? And G- Jesus says, you don't really know what you want. You're obsessed with things that can satisfy the moment. You're obsessed what can, with what can satisfy, what can fill your stomach. He says, I, I actually want to give you more. I want to give you more. He does this in John 4 with water. He does it in John 7 with water. He says, you thirst? I can give you water that will make you never thirst. You, you hungry? I can give you bread that will make you never, never hunger again. I want to give you more. And it's incredible. It's so incredibly simple. He, he says, the work, you got to do the work that God requires. Well, what's the work, Jesus? What's the work? What do we we got to show up. We got we to do a certain thing. And Jesus says, the work of God is this. To the believe in the one whom God has sent. To believe. You know what's true about belief and the way that God has designed this? It's incredible dependence. It's incredible dependence to say, God, the only thing I can do is to believe what you've done. I fully depend on you, on the one that that God the Father has sent. And they go, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Now, like, at that point, if I'm, if I'm like, you know, on the sidelines of this, I'm like, you guys have just gotten so many signs, it's ridiculous. Like, you're standing nearby where he turned water into wine. You've just heard about him healing somebody's son who was dying from miles away. He, he, honestly, we skipped over the part where Jesus walked on the water, and you're going, give us a sign. Give us a sign. And, and so this is Jesus' response. He goes, Moses gave you bread from heaven. And he fed your stomach. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. I am what sustains life itself. And so what Jesus does is he takes his followers back to the desert. He takes them back to the cries of hunger and the need. He takes them to the Father's sustaining miracle where they live or die based on every day and whether or not God provides for them. And Jesus says, I am the bread. Only I'm not bread that, that, in such that you eat it and you're satisfied until the next meal. I am the bread that I give it to you and you have life forever, forever. See, these are the things when, when people understood him, they either wanted him to be king before, but they wanted him to be king before when they saw his power. But when they heard his message, they wanted to kill him. Verse 41, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Verse 51, Jesus presses on. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. I I, I think he intentionally makes this a little bit uncomfortable for us. The idea of eating his his flesh. I think it's intentional as we wrestle with the idea that his body on the cross is going to be that which sustains us. His corpse is, is the path to life for us. Moses gave you a meal. I give you my body. And that's where you find life. And so when, when Jesus makes a statement, I am the bread that came down from heaven, he says, you need to see me. 
You need to see me the same way that when the Israelites were in the desert and they felt starvation upon them and they, they had no possible means for anything to go forward unless bread itself would happen to rain down from heaven. That's how you need to see me. This is it. This is utter dependence that God, unless you make food fall out of the sky, I've got nothing. Jesus says, you want a sign? I came from heaven and I'm the answer to every one of your deep prayers that you don't even know you long for, you don't even know you need. And I am what sustains you. I give my life for you. Any man, any woman, any child who comes to faith in Jesus Christ at the end of the day needs to ultimately understand that spiritually it's like they're in the desert. And unless food somehow falls out of that sky, we got nothing. And Jesus came to lay down his life on the cross for us and to allow us to have life through his own flesh. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors, your ancestors ate manna and died. Like that worked for a little bit. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, to believe in Jesus Christ is to feed on the bread. A bread that will give you life, that will promise you life forever. And Jesus knows that, that if we try to do this on our own, if this is about us and how good of a person we can be and all the good things that, that we've done, then we're going to depend, we're going to rely on ourselves Jesus says, that's not how this works. It's not how this works. It's entire dependence through faith that the only thing that makes me right with God is the blood shed on the cross by Jesus the Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And if I'm gonna live after I die, then I'm gonna believe in him and that believing in him is like I'm eating his flesh because it's the only thing that sustains me and gives me life. I, I don't know where faith is for you, if, it, if it's this thing where you think, I come to church and that's what God wants for me, or I'm a better person than my next door neighbor and that's what God wants for me. The scriptures are, are just really clear here. Faith that saves you, that gives you life after death, that frees you from, from punishment, separated from God forever, is faith in Jesus Christ. To believe in that, is to take a bite of bread that allows you to live forever. I want to kind of take a, a, what will seem like a bit of a twist here at the end. Um, but it, it, one of our key passions here as a church, one of our values is we have a passion, we have an obligation for the next generation. Um, and so my challenge for us as we walk away is not just to make sure that we believe in utter dependence, but, but to say, what of the next generation? Do we, do we teach this to them? Do we model, and, and not just like us as a staff, but do you as individuals, if your parents, if your grandparents, if you're an influencer of the next generation in any way, shape, or form, make sure the next generation knows what God did for you. It looks like me going, hey guys, guess what? Dad was actually a sinner. You know, like a lot of the things, I still mess up, but like a lot of the things that you get in trouble for, I used to get in trouble for, I actually did other stuff that I got in trouble for. And the bigger deal was not that I got punished. The bigger deal was that, that, that sin needed rescue. And Jesus Christ died on the cross. And all, all, all of dad's hope is in him. Right? Psalm 78, the psalmist says, We will not hide from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. 
Hey, good example for that. Verse 23. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. When God does the big thing, whatever that thing was, whatever, whatever that is for you, that there's only one way I could have gotten through that was Jesus. No other way I got through that. Your, your kids better know about that. Your grandkids better know about that. Any children that you have the opportunity to influence, they should know about that. They should know what God has done through you personally. I was having a conversation about, with one of the dads from, from church here, and he was like, man, I have all these moments that are kind of these faith milestones for me in life, and, and I had them, and I remember just always hearing my dad talk about them. Like, first of all, kudos to, to Grandpa now, right? I remember hearing my dad talk about them, and, and then it dawned on me that I've got to kind of have my own, and so now I've had my own, and now I'm telling my kids that, that this is what I've had, but I'm challenging them likewise to say, what is your faith milestone? Like, what is that thing where, like, God just miraculously provided and it was so affirming to you of what you believed in? What is that for you? And to pass that on and to, to have just a, this mentality that says, whenever the Spirit of God gives me this opportunity to speak with the next generation and influence them about this, I'm going to take it. I think sometimes we put pressure on this to make it this really organized thing. Like, now I'm going to sit my kids down and have the Jesus talk. Like, I, I don't, that doesn't usually work for me. Yeah, I compare that to like trying to do a family group photo. I can't stand group photos. There's a reason we as a church will never have a group photo because I personally don't like them. I'll fire any staff who suggests that we should have one. Nobody has ever had a group photo when they're like, that's the best I've ever looked. Look at that smile. They caught my good side. No, everybody's like, oh, yeah, there's me. I can hardly see me. I, I joke about this. We, we had uh, you know, lacrosse um, where, where they were doing like the team photos and we were like, you know what, we're, we're going to save our 20 bucks here. Um, you, you guys can take the team photo, but we're just, we, we've got cell phones that take good pictures and, and like afterwards, Corinne took this like in the moment snapshot of, of one of our kids playing lacrosse and like, that is, that's a great photo. That we can put on the wall. Like that's good. Because um, it's just like in the moment, it's real. It's not pretend, it's not... Fabricate. Look, this is how I want your conversations with your kids to be. Just in the moment. Hey, guys, like you made that cool Earth Day thing. Guess who made that, right? And yeah, we should take care of it because God gave it to us. And so we're stewards of this. And so it should be a big deal to us, right? It's just little capture moments of faith. But it's got to it's come from us. We've got we've to teach this to the next generations. We've, we've got we've to love them. Got to let them know that the thing that I worship the most is the God who rained down bread from heaven. And not just bread, but his own son. So look, as, as we wrap this up and we go to praise, my hope is that when you sing to God in praise, you, you sing as though you've been fed bread from heaven. That your soul's been satisfied in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we love you. Lord, I hope that it's not our generation alone that knows this, that it's the ones coming after and after. God, I pray that we just live in sheer dependence on you. It's your grace and mercy that gives us life after death through faith. We love you in your son's name. Amen.